0: Hi, this is Larry Pasca, Executive Director of NCSS, the National Council for the Social Studies. This episode features an author published in an NCSS journal. Please enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12, and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, how are you doing? Yeah. I'm a little bit nervous. We're live can, right now. I can see you. Yeah, yes. That's that usually doesn't happen. I usually just hear... No, actually, we do record You episodes. actually do
1: see me. Oh, but the people can't see me.
0: <laughs> but yeah, the, listeners, no, the listeners can't. So uh, we are doing... If you're listening to this, we are doing this as our first live stream, which allows people to participate, ask us questions, add comments and things as they want to. So it's something we're going to experiment with a little bit. So So we'll see how this translates to the podcast when we know that we potentially got a little bit of an audience. But I want to start I dressed today. up for the
1: occasion because this is how we're going to start up.
0: I did yeah, like... it's much better. You know, you usually, I feel like, are just wearing like a burlap sack and it's very disappointing. It's usually it. But today <laughs>
1: it's, you know, tuxedo. You know, the tie is a little bit difficult. So I didn't do the bow tie, but it's there hanging. Like I'm like, it's been a long night and I'm, you know, and so I've taken it off.
0: Yes, that's... And we're ready now. We're ready to go. This is the best part of the night, right? Oh,
1: Absolutely this is when the magic happens. Bow ties down. Let's go.
0: I've been thinking a lot about lately about our podcast and how it's, it's, you know, my best form. I think I've said this a lot of times, my best form of professional development, right? We talk to guests who give us so much wisdom, teach us lessons. And then one of my goals is to, you know, enact some of those ideas in my classroom. And I was thinking that before we, we always just move on to the next episode. And sometimes we have guests back on. But I was thinking about uh, the the episode we just recently had with Dr. LeGarrett King, where he talked about black historical consciousness and he gave principles for doing that. And because I know what our topic is tonight, I was thinking maybe we could review those kind of like you would like doing good professional development. Because one thing we know about good professional development is it's it's not a one-time thing. You got to come back to the ideas over and over. So I was thinking we could review those and then think about maybe like how they apply to what we're going to talk about today. I think that's a grand idea. So let's talk about let's review Dr. King's six principles that he came up with and we know there's at least one more, maybe two more coming. That we're right. going to Right.
1: Yeah, up. we did. That was very exciting. I can't wait to get the exclusive on number 8.
0: So, when you talk about black history, he talked about the importance first of of addressing power and oppression, right? And he said that 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 black history that's that's part of it, right? That there is a lack of justice and addressing freedom, equality and equity in black people throughout history. You really can't avoid that. I think I think we, we probably do that one a lot. Don't you think of all of them in, in schools? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that's something that, yeah, we definitely have gotten much better with. But I feel like, unfortunately, it probably stops around this one or the next one. So I'm glad that we're reviewing these to to really push us forward.
0: Well, and I do think sometimes we don't do a good job of talking about who's doing the oppression. I think I've talked about that on a lot of episodes. Well, let's go let's go on to the second one. So his so Dr. King's second principle of black historical consciousness is black agency, resistance, and perseverance. How do we do on that one in schools?
1: I feel like we're we're getting better. I feel like we are doing work trying to talk about resistance, trying to talk about, like people is, is agents uh, or having mm-hmm. some agency in situations. I feel like that's like a, a very much a developing one, but I do feel like at least in the past few years, there's been a lot more resources that are talking about black agency. Yeah, even when we're talking about slavery, um, mm-hmm. we're also talking about black agency through that. So it's not just like, even the term, like thinking about the term enslaved versus slave, enslaved worker versus you know slave, like I feel like that's kind of a way to bring agency. Like these are people, and then, then examining like you know who these people are. Uh, I know like Mount Vernon and some other museums have, have done a really good job trying to name people and trying to talk more about the um, enslaved workers there, um, so they can show that they, you know they're they're agents.
0: Absolutely. They have, they- and so the third the third principle he talked about is Africa and the African diaspora, which really what he meant by that is that there's that narratives of Black history should be contextualized within the larger African diaspora. So he said, for example, a course in Black history should begin with ancient African history and connect to various Black histories around the globe. How do we do on that one? I don't think that great. Yeah, and you'd think in world history, right? World history is a topic taught in most schools, but are we making connections between that, you know, across continents, which is, you know, what a lot of uh, Black leaders like Marcus Garvey and W.E.B. Du Bois And others have have you know advocated for
1: yeah no that's something that I know as a teacher I can definitely work to get better with Um, and I think part of it are our context needs to change a little bit so like I teach a world history 2 course which starts in in 17 ish 100 the world history 1 course is now partially taught in the 8th grade but there's really not that connective tissue in there there yeah Mm -hmm. I feel like we can do better with this
0: all right, so in these last three, I think probably there's a real struggle on these. So we'll go through these a little quicker, but we want to be really conscious of them. So the fourth principle was Black Joy, right? That that you should that that Black lives and Black histories is not just about oppression. Uh, that's obviously a part of it, but there's there's times of happiness, togetherness, and the fight for freedom in both generations past and present that that allow for joy to exist. Let me go. I'll go through these other two, and then you tell me how we're doing on these. Then. Uh, number five is black identities, which really focuses on that we can't just look, for example, at uh, like we do with other historical groups, you know, like middle class black males or activist leaders that we need to look at multiple identities, intersectional identities, whether you know, that shouldn't just be the middle class, Christian, heterosexual, able-bodied, you know, black leaders that we're looking at. And then his last his last category was uh, black historical contention, recognizing that, that black people have uh, contentious history ever it's not a monolithic group there's not black views on everything that there's the that the black community in in the past and the present debates on things and has different views on how we should proceed and and how they view life how are we doing on those last three needs improvement needs improvement. needs a lot of improvement actually like being honest yeah yeah so so I think that's the thing about dr. King's framework is it's really helpful for analyzing the stuff we're doing. So I, I would find it really useful if we just had a specific topic in history that we could focus on, then I could apply these ideas.
1: That sounds like a grand idea. If only we had someone who could uh, give us some sort of specificity and topic that we could do it. Wait.
0: We do. What? <laughs> Yay! We would like to welcome into the podcast, Jenna, but you go, your your name with your article, Jennifer Pontius Vandenberg. Welcome.
2: Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
1: I'm amazed that you just popped up like that. I don't know how that, ha- that was really cool. Like, did you, did you set that up? Was that like, that was amazing.
2: Totally. I flew in fairy style.
1: I I loved it.
2: Yep.
0: Yeah. This, this uh, platform we're using makes it fun because usually our guest is sitting there and we can see them and we're acting, but in this case, Jenna just really did pop up for us. Uh, but so we, we actually just met you in the last few minutes, and so we need to learn a lot more about you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in education?
2: Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. So I'm a classroom teacher. I teach world history, 10th grade, um, and I'm teaching at a public high school called Mariner High School, which is just north of Seattle. When I, started I know te-
1: someone from Seattle. Yay! Sorry. No, there, you know? we, just had, we literally
0: just had a guest yesterday from Seattle.
2: Well, um, I know every- person that lives in seattle so who, yeah. who did you talk to
0: Jenny conrad who must be your best friend
2: best 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 friend that person <laughs> well, <laughs> if,
0: if you do need a uh, good friend we now know two great people that we really like from seattle and so we can set it up
2: yeah good yeah. Um, well, it's about ready to snow, and nobody in Seattle knows how to drive in the snow, so I cannot see this this person. Literally, yet.
1: that's exactly what she said yesterday because I, I was yeah. shoveling. it. Oh my goodness, you're. That's
2: all we talk about when snows in the forecast. That's all Seattleites will discuss. So, yeah, and
1: I didn't know you're called Seattleites. I love. I'm learning so much. So you teach world history. Who is Jenna? Right.
2: So before I taught in Seattle, I actually started my career in um, Las Vegas. I taught at um, eighth grade, like a world history, geography, eighth grade class in Las Vegas. So that was my first job, teaching job. I taught a little bit in like Norway. I had an internship in Norway teaching at a high school there. And I also did a little bit of kind of like summer school teaching in China. But Vegas was my first a career. So I taught in Vegas for five years, and then I moved to Denver, and I taught ninth grade geography in Denver, Colorado, for a couple of years, and that was interesting because Colorado's a pay for performance state, so teachers were paid on like how good they were, which is which was interesting to be part of. And then how after- is that
0: like so is it, there is merit is so the questions. other term for this merit?
2: Yes, merit pay. So there's like 10 different ways that they would rank you like somebody would come and observe you and your your students would fill out surveys about how great of a teacher you were. And then there'd be tests that they would take in the beginning and the end of the year. There was all these like metrics and ranking systems. So I got really good at like spreadsheets when I lived in Denver.
0: How how did you feel about the system? I have like a strong opinion on it, but to be honest, like I haven't talked to a lot of people who've actually experienced a merit pay system. What was
2: it like for you? It was interesting. The reason I didn't like it is I felt like it didn't encourage collaboration. For example, I kind of came up with this great like teaching idea that would really get kids to like get it. And of course, my first instinct is to run next door and share it with my friend who also teaches. And I had this thought in my mind like, oh, wait, I need to do better on the test than he does. And as soon as that, thought popped in my head I'm like oh this is terrible and oh, of course no. I got rid of that thought and I shared the teaching tool with my friend I did the right thing but the the fact that I even thought that um is the strike one for merit pay so it I think when you try and get teachers to compete with each other I don't think that's a good thing
0: yeah that's there you that's, big, that's kind of what I my my whole thinking right is when it when it, it and that's a, so much of our education system right like I have to even talk to my students because they've been so programmed to only care about their individual achievement. And so we always have a talk at the beginning of the semester just about that we're here to learn together. And in fact, like all your learning will not be judged by what you do individually, but also like feel some responsibility for the people next to you. We're gonna get to know each other. And that's such a challenge because our system really pushes against that and treats us all as these like siloed individual in this great war of competition.
2: Yeah, yep, that is true.
0: It's, yeah, so where are you at? How, we're we're partway through the journey. I feel like we're page two hundred of the of the the biography. What's next? Uh,
2: then I moved to uh, Seattle after Denver. I'm a huge Seattle Mariner fan, so you know the Colorado Rockies weren't doing it for me. So <laughs> I, I moved back to Seattle. Seattle's home for me. It's where my family is. So I like move back home. But also for Denver and its merit pay, even with like my base salary and merit pay that I would or would not have gotten, you get way more money in Seattle regardless, so Seattle's a great place to teach because they pay teachers well, um, and the students have so many resources and supports that my students in Denver and in Las Vegas did not have, so it's ultimately where I wanted my own children to be educated in, in Washington State, so, so I moved here, and I've been here for about seven or eight years teaching at 10th grade, world history, mostly, in Everett, Washington, just north of Seattle. So that's, that's me.
0: Well, that's a, a great story. And we, we really appreciate having classroom teachers on podcast. I think one of the realities of being a teacher is you're such a generalist, you know, you're teaching like World War Two in like three days, and then you're on to like the next thing. So um, and a lot of the professors we have on it, they're able to specialize in something. And so we're going to talk about an article you wrote. And I'm just impressed because when I was a teacher, uh, there's no way I could have pulled together the this article that you wrote, because I think you just seem to really have such a, a, a deep grasp of this specific topic, which I imagine doesn't take up a massive part of your curriculum. And so let's introduce the article. This article was published in social education and it is titled Teaching the Haitian Revolution. And so if you haven't checked out Social Education, it's a journal by NCSS. And this just came out in the November-December issue. So congratulations on the publication. And Tell us about it.
2: Thank you. Yeah, and the it's an open source article, so you don't have to be a member to read it, so it's it's available. Let's see. So I started my career in Las Vegas like I said and I hadn't done any of, like, the necessary work about institutionalized racism and its role in the classroom. I had not done any of the principles that Lagaret King had mentioned in the last podcast. I mean, I was not prepared to teach kids of color. And I was a 23-year-old, like, white girl arriving to teach mostly African-American students. And all those, like, kind of cringy white savior mentalities that are from Michelle Pfeiffer movies were present within me. So that was a problem. And I realized it was a problem when I was teaching the Atlantic slave trade. So I'm teaching my students about, you know, enslaved or people that were captured in Africa and came through the Middle Passage to the Americas. And I hadn't learned about slave revolts in high school. I had no idea that slave revolts happened. I didn't learn about them in college. So I dove into teaching about the Atlantic slave trade armed with, like, all the knowledge that was in my student's textbook. So, like, a page, right? And it didn't go well, right? Like, I taught horror after horror after horror of the Middle Passage, and it was all just, like, subjugation. That's all I taught. And and I knew it, it was wrong, kind of, as I was doing it, right? Like, I knew I was doing a bad job, but I didn't know how to fix it. So, I had students telling me that they were not comfortable in these lessons. And When I would talk about the horrors of slavery, a lot of my students would say things like, I would never let anyone treat me or my family that way. I would die trying to, you know, fight for myself and fight for my family. And my response to these students would be something like, oh, you don't understand how things were. Like, I would think they were kind of naive. But in reality, it was me that was naive and it was me that didn't understand things. Like, I just didn't, the, the amount at which I did not know was staggering sorry students. So every day after teaching, I would like, I'd go home and I would worry about it. And I knew that I was doing something wrong. So I started like Googling and reading about how other teachers did better than I did. And eventually my research brought me to the Haitian revolution. And, um, I learned that my students were right. Like, People did fight back. People did fight for their family. It happened again and again and again and again. Um, so this was really fascinating to me. So when I discovered the Haitian Revolution, I kind of dove right in. Like I read, I pulled it up. I read Laurent Dubois' book, "Avengers of the New World," and it was fascinating. Like every sentence of that book made me want to learn more. So I started looking for all these resources and um, ways to bring this into the classroom. So that that's kind of how how that started. So I've been teaching the Haitian Revolution for probably uh, 10 or 15 years. So the article that I wrote was a culmination of of 10 years of of classroom work.
0: Well, I just want to say, I really appreciate you sharing your teaching story, because I think that kind of honesty, I think most teachers, you know, a lot of feel that way. And I, I think a lot of white teachers who want to do justice to black history and do justice to their students of color and their black students have a lot to learn. And it's really important for us to recognize that. And I really, so I appreciate you sharing that. And your story was pretty much the opposite of Michelle Pfeiffer in Dangerous Minds because you went and did research and worked on your teaching and learned and got on the internet. She just came in in a leather jacket and tried to show them Kung Fu is I think basically her main teaching strategy.
2: I don't have a leather jacket, and I don't know kung fu, <laughs> so I was strike two already.
0: <laughs> uh, I think you ended up better it's it really is I actually have students watch clips from that to talk about like weight saviorism and 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 getting rid of their it's it's an absolutely ridiculous movie but as a white kid, I didn't recognize that right I didn't recognize it until people pointed out the critiques to me and I think that's kind of part of the, the growth so. You've been teaching this for a long time, which does, uh, you know, you get better every year at teaching this. So how did you come up with this le- this lesson that's in the article and what steps do we need to kind of understand?
2: Sure. I think I this article really came together in the last couple of years because there's been these new like picture books and young adult novels about the Haitian revolution, which was really exciting to me. So that's, I think, what inspired the article was all the, the new books and information so, when I, when I start teaching about the Haitian Revolution, I give the students the, the kind of main question that they're going to have to write an essay about is, why, why is the Haitian Revolution forgotten? Like, so we look in their textbook, right? The Haitian Revolution happened right alongside the French Revolution. And their textbook has four chapters on the French Revolution. I mean, page after page after page. And their textbook has two paragraphs on the Haitian Revolution. So that's our first piece of evidence that this revolution- is. use the same got. textbook. Yeah, probably every textbook. Yeah. <laughs> so
0: here I have it. That's cool. And that's a, that would be, a, we've talked, we talk a lot about the C3 framework and writing compelling questions. And that's a powerful, compelling question. Cause you really, not only are you getting into the history but you're getting into the historiography and politics of school history and school textbooks, which I think really empowers students to be critical thinkers about knowledge. And so I love that question. I, I definitely am going to have to use that.
2: So, when I am teaching my students about the Haitian Revolution, I give them images that basically, like, instead of giving them a lecture, I just give them 10 images. And if I talk about each image, that equals a lecture. So, that's how I introduce the topic. If we were in person in the classroom, I give students, like, these images i cut them out and i give them an envelope and then i have them like match the image with the the description of the image and that makes a timeline we i've been teaching 100% online so i um i will pull up an image. So first, like the first image I used to teach this is an image of uh, the Taino people. So I put an image on the screen and then all my students write their reaction to that image. And then I use their words to kind of explain what's going on in the picture. Anyways, so we talk about the Taino people and then there's a picture of Columbus landing on Hispaniola. And then there's a picture of the island being divided. So the east half goes to Spain and that's going to become... Santo Domingo, or today the Dominican Republic, and then the west half goes to France, and France is going to name their colony Saint-Domingue, and that's the um, nation that will become Haiti. Right? So then we focus in on Saint-Domingue, and the next image I share my students is um, enslaved people working on, in sugarcane fields. Uh, because my students have this image that all enslaved people pick cotton, especially my students that have been schooled in America. So we talk a little bit about the sugar economy, and and then the next image is a painting by Agostino nice about and the picture shows a whole bunch of colored folks dressed up in fancy clothes with fancy jewelry looking for all the world like they own the place. And it's a picture that was painted in the seventeen hundreds. And students are always really surprised when they see this painting because in their minds, like they picture slavery in America and kind of everyone in black in the South in, in the southern states are slaves. But um, Haiti was a little bit different than them. And so we have to talk about the, how the Haitian society was set up before the slave revolt, and I compare that to America. So in the United States, um, in the southern states of the United States, slavery was very black and white, right? If you were black or half black or a quarter black or one-eighth of, you know, uh, black ancestry, you were likely a slave. But that was different in Saint-Domingue. It was different in the nation that would become Haiti. In the United States, if a white slave owner, like Thomas Jefferson, would rape his slaves, the resulting babies would be enslaved. But that wasn't the case in Saint-Domingue. In Saint-Domingue, a lot of the white planters would have like romantic relationships with um, women of color, and then the um, the offspring of those relationships would often be free. So in Saint-Domingue, you have this population of white French folks, and then you have a population of enslaved folks, um, and then you have some um, mixed people, or maybe enslaved folks that had bought their freedom or had won their freedom. So you have this population of free people of color, and and the term for that is Afronse. Sorry, my French is not perfect. Afronse. Yeah. So um, that kind of dynamic helped lead to the slave, the revolution, the first initial slave rebellion. So that's the next picture I show students, uh, a picture of all these white people running toward the boats, and this city is in flames. Because um, what happened was enslaved people on San domingue they ran away from their plantation owners, they met up into the, in the mountains, and they planned a rebellion, right? This rebellion was planned, thousands of slaves enslaved people were busy planning this rebellion, it was kept secret, it was... It was very well organized, and um, in 1791, a whole bunch of former enslaved people ran down the mountains and took over the plantation, often murdering plantation owners and um, sometimes burning down the very plantation where they used to work as as slaves. So
0: you see you see kind of that connection right to the to plans that were in the united states that didn't come to fruition on this level and so just even a connection there to right u.s history when you think of nat turner's rebellion or john brown's rebellion or the plans i guess i should say which were not very john i always hear john brown was a very excited about ending slavery and very enthusiastic but a terrible planner and so (laughs) so you see but this one is actually one that came to fruition and i think Pairing those is really interesting for even U.S. history teachers, right? Who would think maybe like, what does Haiti have to do with U.S. history right there? There's already some um, comparisons and, and stories of agency.
2: Definitely. There's a book by Julius Scott, um, and he kind of writes about how like the winds of revolt went through all the Caribbean islands and up to America as well so it's yeah all these teeny tiny little rebellions happened all over the United States that we like historians don't even know about they would they would assume they were just happening everywhere but yeah planning was huge and this is important for students too because students kind of have this idea that there was one big fight and all the enslaved people killed all the white people and then it was over but that that of course was not the case you know after the initial days of chaos then somebody had to step in and be a leader and that person was uh, Toussaint Louverture so um, i described Toussaint Louverture as the black george washington and that kind of gets an idea in students heads he was a great planner he was a great leader he was uh, the reason that this all Succeeded. So, like you mentioned, I mean, you have to have the plants to back this up. So, Toussaint Louverture was, um, first of all, he was well educated and he was well read. Toussaint Louverture was born an enslaved person, but the master of his plantation taught Toussaint how to read and write. Of course, this would have been illegal in the United States. Toussaint Louverture kind of occupied a privileged role, I, I don't know if you could say privilege, he was enslaved, but he occupied a different role on the, in the plantation, and then he was ultimately, I don't remember if he was set free or if he earned his freedom, but he became a free person, and again, this was also less likely to happen in America, right, the idea that an enslaved person would become free, it was harder in America, so Toussaint had all the tools to, to lead his country.
0: And you see a lot of times racial hierarchies that do exist, right, in societies where even, I mean, sometimes I think in the United States because of the you know one drop rule, right, where if you were um, just had you know one black uh, person in your family tree, whether wherever it was, you were segregated, you were enslaved. By that, and so it's it's kind of a different to think that that um, colorism even played a role in other things like that in other societies, and there could be maybe more social mobility because it was so rare in the United States.
2: Yeah, huge. There was actually like some historian went about like classifying over a hundred different classifications of color and gave each group like a name, so. Um, I tell my students, you re- you really had to know your fractions to be racist in Saint Domingue. Like how racist you needed to be dependent on like the fractions and names. And it was it was it was a lot more nuanced than racism in America for sure. Which is something kids don't innately understand. Like they, I feel like so many students think slavery in America, like slavery all over the world, is how it was in America. So that has to be explicitly taught, which. I didn't realize when I first started teaching that, but that's important. And so, and then uh, Toussaint Louverture ends up fighting um, the French, right? The French get involved. uh, Napoleon is taking, well, kind of before Napoleon, the French Revolution is happening right on top of this Haitian Revolution. So... In France, there's people talking about liberty and equality and fraternity and some of those like French freedom fighters or revolutionaries or whatever you want to call them will come to Saint-Domingue bringing those revolutionary ideas with them. And so some folks in France, especially the ones in France, not in Saint-Domingue, wanted to end slavery and were kind of cheering kind of cheering on this the slave revolt in Saint-Domingue so there was definitely like anti-slavery voices in France because this was happening during the French Revolution so France kind of goes back and forth like France decides they're going to end slavery and then the people in the colonies the people in Saint-Domingue that like have slaves don't like that so they kind of are arguing back and forth and then Napoleon uh, Bonaparte comes to power and he said no 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 like we're gonna we're gonna go into you know San domingue guns blazing and possibly reinstate slavery. So so that happens, right? So I'm kind of fast-forwarding a little bit, but in San Domingue, there's kind of this big tension between the former enslaved people, the people of San Domingue are like okay, should we go back to the sugar fields now and get paid? Should we should we kick all the white people off our island and own it just for ourselves? Um, should we divide up land equally, kind of like we would say communism today? Like, what, what should we do? So they're kind of having this discussion. And Toussaint Louverture is saying, we need to get back to the sugar fields. We need to make money. We need to prove that we're a good French colony. So that was his stance, and that was um, – Unpopular, right? A lot of, a lot of former slaves who had fought for their freedom are now essentially being sent back to the sugar fields to do that very same work. So there was a lot of tension in Saint Domingue after the initial rebellion. Okay, and then back in France, Napoleon decides that he's going to come and show everyone who's boss and re- recreate the slave trade, recreate the slavery system, and assert his power in Saint Domingue. And, and he loses. Right, the French army comes to Saint Domingue, and um, the people of Saint Domingue fight back and they win. Toussaint Louvatour is captured. He will die sad and alone in a French jail cell. So that's that's sad. That's a bad bad ending. Sorry, but uh, Jean-Jacques Dessalines takes his place and um, leads his people to victory. Beats the French. Kicks out the French. Kicks out Napoleon, and Haiti becomes the second independent nation in the Western Hemisphere.
1: That's Dan Snow actually just did a, a great podcast on Tawassan Lovatar. I think it was a couple months ago. It was fantastic. Mostly he was talking about like his military, his military um, not experience because he, he didn't have like, he wasn't trained in, milita, in military. So he just was just an amazing, amazing uh, leader. Uh, I do recommend that podcast. We'll make sure we link it in the notes. But yeah, no, that's, it's a great story.
2: It is a good story. And if for teachers, I would recommend, and maybe for students too, there's a really great PBS documentary. It's called Eglate, Eglate for All, Toussaint Saint and the Haitian Revolution. It's like an hour-long documentary, so probably a little too much to show in class. But for like teachers that want some background on this, because it's a complicated history, that that is a good one to watch and then to bring that knowledge into the classroom is powerful. I always show my students maybe about a 10-minute clip of that, mostly so they can hear the history from Haitian people. It's narrated by Edward Danticat, so they hear a, a good French accent instead of my terrible French accent. And I think it's important that they, that they hear the history, not just filtered from me, but also through that documentary, because they interview so many Haitians. So that's a good resource, too.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's a I I really appreciate that approach, right? Of of who gets to who tells history and uh, recognizing that again. But you did a very nice job of walking us through a lot of this history for people that maybe were a little uh, unfamiliar. So okay, so you actually created and you have a full, um, you know, kind of inquiry arc lesson with supporting questions and compelling questions. And you said you started with images, which is I just think such a great strategy for teachers in general, right, is to, to let students because there's so much to ponder when they look at an image, and just to start developing their historical thinking skills. What, what did the rest of the lesson? What does the rest of the lesson look like? Can you kind of walk us through both the components of it and, and what it looked like in your classroom?
2: So there is uh, the images, and then I I put them in, like, three groups. One group watches sections of the, like, stations, kind of like we're in elementary school again, but don't say that. (laughs) So one group watches clips of the documentary I mentioned. One group goes through the images, and then a third group takes a look at books. So I just mentioned um, in the last couple years there has been finally books about the Haitian Revolution. So there is a picture book and I am a huge proponent of picture books in the high school classroom always for every topic. So Tammy Charles, who is her I think grandparents were Haitian, maybe her husband's grandparents. Anyways, Tammy Charles um, wrote freedom soup, which is a picture book about a little girl making freedom soup with her grandma and her grandma talks about the Haitian revolution. So, but there's a lot in there, like the details in that picture book are great for high school students. And there's a lot that high school students can get from that picture book, but also like it's a picture book I gave to my, my own kids are, I have a first grader and a second grader. And I gave that book to their teachers because it's a good way for these stories to be introduced to the youngest readers and like like eric king was talking about black joy um freedom soup is full of joy and love like it's the grandma and her granddaughter like baking in the kitchen and they're dancing and they're singing and they're getting ready for a big party and the whole book is just full of love even though it's kind of about the haitian revolution so well done tammy charles this is another really good one, Dear Haiti, Love Elaine, is a young adult novel by Maika uh, Mulight and her sister Maritza Mulite wrote this book together, and it's, it's not about the Haitian Revolution, it's a contemporary YA novel about, like, a girl and her family and her love life, but there's a few pages on the Haitian Revolution, so I have my students read just those pages, and... It's kind of the Haitian Revolution as explained by a snarky 17-year-old. And it's funny, right? So students read some of of this book too. And then of course my other goal is I'll have students that, hey, can I take this, can I borrow this book and read it? So I'm of course that's my other goal as well. And then there's a little bit, this book just came out last year, stamped. I'm sure you guys know it. All teachers love this book, right? Oh, there's your copy. We got copies all over the screen, people. (laughs) So I'm sure all your podcast listeners have heard everyone and their brother talk about stamped. Um, The Haitian Revolution also shows up here. So I have my students look for some pieces in books.
0: And I, the, I actually have my stamped copy sitting here. It's funny enough. Uh, this is the, the remix by Jason Reynolds of Ibram X. Kendi's larger uh, stamped history book. And the thing I really liked about it, and I think this is such an important lesson for social studies teachers, is was about narrative, right? What uh, Jason Reynolds and Ibram X. Kendi did in, in their introduction of Haiti is made me rethink about it, its role in, in thinking about what freedom looks like. Right. And thinking about how that freedom compares to that of the United States. And honestly, like I maybe I'd heard that before, but it just stuck with me since then. And it made me interested in, in Haiti. And I think that's also something that's so important for our students to see. Like it's the so what? Who cares? Why should I learn about Haiti? Why do I need to learn about history? But they do a, that book does a tremendous job of, of reframing Haiti as part of a freedom story. Right. That we need to really deeply think about. So I, that's why I had the book sitting here next to me as you said that.
2: It's amazing. I use this book for exploration stories, too, like the story about the Portuguese and the world's first racist. Like, well done, Jason Reynolds. And and yeah. all these books are also written, like, these sisters are Haitian-American. Tammy Charles is an African-American with Haitian roots. They're all stories taught. I try and give from a perspective that's not a white person because my students get that from me. So I try to give them perspectives from other folks as well. And then, so our big question, again, is um, why, has, why has Haiti been forgotten? Like, why has the Haitian Revolution been forgotten? And to help us answer that question, we turn to a, a speech by Frederick Douglass. And, of course, Frederick Douglass, I have to give my students a little bit of background, which I'm, I'm sure your podcasters know about Frederick Douglass. Um, but something that most people don't know is that he was the consulate to Haiti, Right? So when the Haitian Revolution first happened in, 18, in the early 1800s, it was top secret in the United States. People from Saint-Domingue or Haiti were not allowed to like immigrate or come to America. Trade between um, Haiti and America stopped. America did not, Americans um, didn't recognize that Haiti was their own independent nation because, of course, America was still a slave nation right southern states didn't want their own slaves southern plantation owners didn't want their own slaves to hear about the Haitian revolution and become inspired to revolt themselves so Haiti was top secret in America so when teachers were teaching their their students in America Haiti was not mentioned because it was secret Haiti was not in any textbooks because it was secret like Haiti was Haiti was not, not to be discussed. Hey, and then um, once the Civil War happened, then um, the United States government recognized Haiti as a country, 60 years after they became a country, and sent Frederick Douglass down to be the consulate to Haiti. But by that point, like, the damage had already been done. Like, all the textbooks had already been filled up with stuff about the French Revolution. There's nothing left for Haiti, so we just kind of f- forgot about it. And Frederick Douglass tried to kind of rewrite that story,
0: and I'm I'm sure that goes along with like lost cause narratives and things like that, right? But but one of the things we really lose is we don't see Haiti as a, the important role it plays in the United States Civil War and and debates about slavery. That's that's often left out too. So yeah, so but I'm not surprised. Like even if it hadn't been left out for those historical reasons, I just feel like it would have been whitewashed or sanitized otherwise uh, in U.S. history textbooks over time.
2: Well, and that's the thing. There's so many answers to this question. So some students say, oh, whitewashing of history. That's why Haiti's been left out. And of course, you can write a compelling paper about that. And some students will say it's been forgotten because of, you know, it wasn't recognized because of slavery. And you can write a compelling paragraph about that. So there's more than one answer to this question. Why has Haiti been forgotten?
0: Which is a, what, what great inquiry is, right? I mean, I think that's the simplest way I put it. When somebody asks me, what do you mean by inquiry? I'm like, we're asking questions that don't have clear answers, right? That are debated and worthwhile, both to students and society. And so that seems like a great question for them to ask. So you have a lot of good sources in your kind of, you have like an inquiry design model blueprint filled out with all of your sources here. And you have all of those books, you have some of those speeches. So what? what do, how do students react to the lesson? What's and maybe there's more of the lesson you need to share with us, but but how do they react and and participate in this lesson? Did do, do they get super fired up like I am about it because I'm a social studies teacher? Or is it piquing their interest? Or how what have you noticed over time teaching this?
2: I mean, of course, all over the board. I would love to say that every student is so fired up <laughs> and they all love it. Um, and that's always what I think in my head, but like realistically, of course when a teacher is talking about the Haitian revolution and your boyfriend is sitting two seats down from you and you're mad at him, like you're, you know, high school takes precedence, right? (laughs) High school students are not always going to be interested in, in every topic. However, they do get interested in this, especially the part about it being kept from them. Like high school students hate the idea that this Haitian revolution was secret for so long. And that that fact usually jazzes them up more than anything. Like this is this was not in our textbook because it was kept secret, and and that really makes them mad. So that usually piques their interest. But I mean, it's a good story. Students are usually interested um, in the Haitian Revolution.
0: And there's a great connection to the Tulsa race massacre and that too. And um, for people that don't know that story, I mean literally like the newspaper articles that helped to incite the Tulsa race massacre do not exist. No one knows where they are. They were literally cut out of the papers that were they're put in the historical files at, you know, that the state held and then textbooks didn't include it until really scholars started digging back into it in the eighties. And of course, families and community members in the black community in North Tulsa oftentimes shared those stories. But, but yeah, those, those histories that are kept secret or, or literally, you know, hidden from people. Of course, you want to know why is this being hidden? So you can always get to, I think you can also sometimes use those types of questions to just pique kids' interest.
2: Totally. Well, and then we talk about like, how do you think textbooks are going to cover the Black Lives Matter movement? How do you think Donald Trump would write about the Black Lives Matter movement? How do you think that Barack Obama would write about the Black Lives Matter movement? You know, like, and that Kids can easily answer those kind of questions, right? Like, a lot of students will say, Oh, Donald Trump would probably lie about the Black Lives Matter movement, or he wouldn't write about it, or Am I not allowed to talk about Donald Trump here? Sorry. Oh, no.
0: (laughs) You you are barely allowed to talk about Donald Trump. I just think uh, you have to assume that he would tweet it, although he can't now. That's right.
2: right. Done and done. (laughs) But that will, like, when students think, like, they think that, you know, like, history. I feel like they don't see presidents as being fallible, but they, they see our, like they see Donald, most of my students see Donald Trump as being fallible, but then sometimes you have to help them make that connection. Well, if this president was fallible, do you think this one could have been too? And they, oh, okay. So that will get them, a lot of times that will get them thinking that bias that they see in their own lives today That existed 200 years ago, too, and it's affecting how you learn about things. And students usually understand that.
1: So the inquiry, I think, is is kind of fantastic and and, and interesting and and difficult. Are there, like, some ways that you had to adjust your activity based upon, like, student feedback or, you know, trying to get more engagement? What are some ways that this has morphed in the past few years?
2: Oh, it's morphed a lot. Let's see, when I first... When I first started teaching it, Choices Curriculum from Brown University, which I love, had a kind of a, a simulation, and that was kind of tricky, right? Because the simulation sort of um, like gave voice to, like gave voice to Napoleon, and so I'm like kind of planning this and reading this, and then I'm picturing in my class some. Like some student being Napoleon arguing for slavery, and I'm like, I that's not going to work. We, we yeah, don't. that's
1: literally one of the choices. <laughs> yeah, we should keep so, slavery and like what?
2: Yeah. Choices has redone that curriculum, by the way. Yeah, they had they have. There's a new one out, but I think it's really, I mean, for such a long time, like um, simulations in the classroom have been um, such a big thing, and now I feel like we're rethinking that and not wanting to put students in the mindset of enslavers uh, in- and. Folks like that. So that has that has morphed. I kind of tried to keep a debate and I ended up totally scrapping that. I just I, I feel like parts of it were just too problematic and I couldn't I couldn't work my way around it. So we don't do a debate anymore. So I used to have like the the people of Saint Domingue that want to cut ties with France and then the people of Saint Domingue that want to remain a french colony and then on the other side the people of france that want slavery and then the people of france that want the colony but no slavery. So i don't I, like i said i don't do that anymore i i just couldn't make make that work. I don't think it was appropriate. I like i said i didn't want anyone arguing for slavery even if it was a historically accurate debate. That i don't think that's appropriate. So now, what I have students do is the Frederick Douglass talk instead. They do a Socratic seminar, like Walter Parker style Socratic seminar about Frederick Douglass's speech. And Frederick Douglass talks about, like, why America has forgotten Haiti. And he said, it's because, in Frederick Douglass's words are, America has forgotten Haiti because Haiti is black and we have not yet forgiven her for being black. Right? So he puts it out there, like, it's racism. That's why people. So, now we have a Socratic seminar about that um, instead.
0: Frederick Douglass is, uh, and he, I made it so far into the episode, Michael. But yeah, reading Frederick Douglass's biography was so helpful in reframing history for me. Right, like the ways he approached so many issues was so counter to the to the approaches you get. And so that's just another, I think, example of that. Well, this is this is a tremendous lesson, and I'm like kind of disappointed that I don't have a class to teach this lesson in. That's tomorrow. But I definitely want to teach us. Is there any advice you have for educators who are are wanting to teach this lesson? You've already talked about some of the changes and things you've made, but is there any advice you would give them?
2: I wish I could think of something brilliant to say right now. (laughs) Um, But I cannot. Give us some
1: good stuff, like make sure to to prepare, you talked about you know teachers should definitely watch that PBS video, which we'll link. Uh, so I, I thought that was a very helpful piece of advice.
0: Yeah, you've actually already said many brilliant things throughout this this episode. That's advice to teachers, which I think one is is really recognizing your positionality as a as a white teacher, right? And thinking about whose voices are teaching this history with the with the PBS videos. Michael said. And so anyway yeah, I th- I I feel like the one of the biggest lessons you gave us is really that reflective aspect of of who is this history for and how am I teaching it and so yeah it's great but it's a, it's a really well-formed lesson so I mean it's Oh we
1: loved it, it was, when we, we looked through it together uh we thought it was just tremendous Yeah thank well, you thank very you. much for for for, public, or for for writing it
2: I gave the editor like 20 pages so that she couldn't publish all of, like, so <laughs> if if you or anyone is interested in, like, all the pictures I use, like, those are all on my website. I think I had to pick just three or four for the article, and also I have reading guides for all the books that I use, so I, I have, the, they're all, like, worksheet form, like, your name blank, and then questions, so if you need some more teacher-friendly materials, everything is on Ooh. my website. I thought of advice, so this, like my idea for or my my interest in the Haitian Revolution came to me because of students. And it should not be students' jobs to teach their teachers not to be racist. Like that should not be the job of the student. But sometimes sometimes that's what's happened. So I think like listening to your students is really important. Um I have a thing on my syllabus where I like am talking directly to my students and I say this out loud and it says, Students, if you feel that My teaching or my content or my actions are racist or homophobic, please know that I will hear you, I will listen to you, I will believe you, and I will make things better. So I kind of put that out there in hopes that if a student, I want them to feel comfortable saying, hey, I feel that this is racist because blah, blah, blah. And I don't want them to feel like I'm not racist is going to be my reaction. So I think making a classroom where your students are comfortable coming to you and also being open to hearing that is important. And this, ha- I mean, almost every year I will have a student who will come up to me often in tears and say, hey, I felt really attacked when you did this, or I felt like this lesson is really racist. And um, I'm always grateful and honored that they will come to me and say that. So I always say that at the beginning of the year, like I will believe you, I will understand you." And I will work to make things better. So listen to your students.
0: That's profound. It really that's really great advice. And in fact, if to the if you're willing, I think that would be another great thing to to add to our show notes in addition to your what a link to your website where you have all of the the detailed stuff that teachers you know can use to get this lesson out. But then also, yeah, that's that I mean, again, another thing I would like to use. and actually, I can use that one in almost any of my classes. so uh, so I appreciate you sharing that. Well, thank you
1: so much, Jennifer Pontius-Vandenberg, for chatting with us today. We do appreciate it.
2: Thank you for having me. This was super fun. What?
0: So uh, you have mentioned your website already. Where can listeners find you and your work online?
2: I like how you say you and your work. I feel like such a professor, which I'm not. You can find <laughs> my stuff about Haiti. On, it's on jennavandenberg.com. If you want to follow me on Instagram, it's I give a lot of book recommendations. My number one teaching tip is to use books in the classroom. So for lots of book recommendations and also pictures of me keeping score at baseball games, Instagram is Jenna keeps score. And then I'm on Twitter at, at Jen one Oh two one N N one zero two G B.
0: So on the, and we will, we will put these all, all in the show notes so people can get on there and you can get in this. I assume this episode will lead to millions of followers for you on all the Jenna keeps scores that so two s's in a row because it's keeps yep. it's okay so there we go i got that one that one on the screen there for people watching
2: yeah okay Lots of baseball advice also if, if you need if you need any tips on how to keep score at baseball games i'm your person
0: i love that i will my i actually have a mother-in-law who is an expert at that also my my wife's family is a baseball family and so maybe I love she it.
2: can follow me on instagram
0: there, oh, okay. I'll, I'll make that connection. See, now you've got a new <laughs> friend in Seattle and you're going to have a new Instagram follower in my mother-in-law. Awesome. So thank you again for joining us. We certainly hope to continue the discussion online and on your website and your Instagram site and your Twitter account. And I think I named all the things we said. So we will be at all of those spaces.
2: Wonderful. Thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. Now, at the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or maybe you want to chat, you're a little bit bored, we're here for you at Visions of Ed. Sometimes we're on Facebook, and other times there's that other place that we signed up for, which I actually forget. Um, So don't get us there. But on (laughs) Twitter is totally fine. Uh, And Of course, if you haven't already, and if you're watching us, you should also subscribe, because why not? Uh, we are, uh, visions of education on Apple podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google play, and literally anywhere you want us to be. And if we're not, you let us know and we'll be there.
0: Yep. And you can subscribe temporary, at least for now to this YouTube page, which is just like at Dan Krutka. I think is how you find mm-hmm. it. And we'll see how many more of these, I called it visions of ed live stream. And I'm like, why didn't I just call it visions of ed live? I could have done better, Michael, but you, you know, yeah. Hopefully people forgive me. And one way to show me forgiveness is by giving me and Michael and this podcast a five-star review, which we will Live then stars. read. We will then read on the air. And we would also like to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas for his outstanding editing skills. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Krutka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Vigents of Education Podcast. Sunday on. You usually don't look around in search of it, but you have a visual audience in this episode.
1: That's I know, it's a little bit awkward.